Hi, I'm Wendy Liu. I'm the CEO and Chief Chocolatier of Sopala Chocolatier based in San Francisco. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Gosh, that's like such a big question. Um, for me, being Vietnamese is very much like a cultural thing um, about food, um, how you interact with people, um, about celebrations, about that, um, all those things, like all of daily interactions um, and how, how you execute them kind of re- remind me of being Vietnamese, like how you show your love, which is food, um, creating uh, ex- experiences and family time and, and family togetherness. That's that's being Vietnamese to me. How did your family get to the United States uh, from Vietnam? So my parents left um, with my two older brothers in um, 81, and they escaped by boat and went to Malaysia, Pulau uh, Bidong. And uh, my mom was actually pregnant with me at the time. And um, they eventually they landed in the refugee camp and stayed there for uh, about a year and eventually came to the U.S. and uh, came to Emeryville, California, because my dad's sister was here. And um, that's kind of how we ended up in California. And you grew up in Emeryville? Yes, we grew up in Emeryville for a while, um, eventually moved to San Pablo, California, and then uh, Santa Rosa. So that's kind of where we started the chocolate company, but we moved um, from each of those cities. But I understand that you didn't really get into chocolate business seriously until a bit later, but you had roots starting it, you know, in your teenage years with your sister, right? Yes. So how it kind of all started was, you know, our parents had a nail salon surprise. Um, so Actually, they started in a lot of different things. They were a seamstress and they um, had a newspaper business, then landscaping business. But my mom always had a nail salon. And so, of course, that means we'd go there after school. That was like babysitting. And um, that's where we spent our time doing homework. We weren't at the library. But then, you know, it, we became of age where we could help out and like answer the phones and book appointments and take off nail polish. And so we would do that. And of course, we didn't really enjoy doing that. Um, and our favorite part was always just, not working and going across the street to the uh, Santa Rosa Plaza and the first store in the mall sees candies. So, you know, if you go there, they give you a sample. And I don't think they knew we would walk by there every single day. So we walked by there every day. We had a sample every day. And I literally, I think, tried every single one of their chocolates and candies. And then one day I just kind of stopped and I was like, how do you make that? Because when you go to the grocery store, you know, this is 2000, 2001, okay, 2000, 2001. When you, when you go to the grocery store, you see chocolate bars. And then sometimes you see, you know, those big hearts with chocolates in there and, and, and you don't really know how they're made. And there wasn't, you know, like internet where you'd be like, how do you make chocolate? You know, there, there wasn't a ton of that. So I um, found a recipe in a magazine, uh, in Gourmet Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, for a mocha espresso chocolate. And then I bought all the ingredients at the grocery store. So chocolate, cream, and butter. And then growing up in Sonoma County, you know, lots of fresh dairy. Um, so I made this chocolate and it just tasted completely different from what we had been trying. And it instantly I was like, I need to know everything about chocolate. Wow. So I started obsessing over it, you know, taking all my money and 
um, spending at this store called Nancy's Fancies and buying dipping forks, chocolate molds, and like making a ton of mistakes and just um, learning all about chocolate and like, how do you put flavors in them? And then, you know, why do they do certain things? Like, why is it not, why is it not shiny? Because you have to temper it or how do you make, actually put fruit into it? So I had to like do all this research on my own to figure out how to make these chocolates. And so um, eventually I started making too many chocolates and my sister, Susan, who is definitely like the more of a marketing, more outgoing one, um, you know, gave them out to people as samples, but you just gave them all out. And our neighbor at the time was working at a radio station and she was like, oh my gosh, where'd you get this? And then Susan's like, oh, Wendy made it. And then she's like, oh, you guys should start a business. We're like, uh, start a business? We're like, she's like, no, Wendy won't want to do that. She just wants to make the chocolate. She's like, I don't know. I think you should. And uh, I have a radio show focusing on young entrepreneurs. So why don't you guys come abroad, uh, come onto the show and talk about how you start your business. We're like, uh, so Susan runs home to me and then she's like, hey, uh, Peggy wants us to start go onto the radio show and talk about our business. I'm like, uh, I don't know if I want to do it. She's like, no, it'll be really fun. We could do it for a summer. So then we're like, okay, let's go to Office Depot. So we'll go to Office Depot. You find like business card templates, labels and boxes and then candy cups. And then we just like make the chocolates. Like how much should we sell it for? Just came up with a price, looking at doing some market research and literally launched our business within a week. Um, and then people would call into the radio show like, oh my God, I didn't know you started this business. You know, I was, we were, I was 19, she was 16. And um, we're like, okay, let's just do this. And so we learned a lot along the way, like including like, you need to have a health permit. You need to not be making this out of your um, home kitchen. Um, and so uh, we eventually start selling at farmer's market, which serendipitously happened to be right in front of my uh, parents' nail salon. So we could like store all of our market stuff there bring it out on the weekly farmer's market. We sold to the customers there, you know, for forever we were selling like Girl Scout cookies, friendship bracelets. So it was just like a new product we were launching. And then we decided to call it Sokola because, you know, it means chocolate and Vietnamese. And we thought we were so creative in doing that. But when we did that, then there were more questions. So like, is this chocolate Vietnamese? And I want to ask, <laughs> ask about that very first batch where you said it didn't taste like other chocolates that you had what do you mean by that can you describe what it tasted like and why there was a difference in the taste like what yeah. in the process was was that made it different you know sometimes i think that back then there wasn't such an emphasis on like fresh chocolates or like gourmet style chocolates things were just kind of made and um meant to have a long shelf life for example, if you look at certain boxes of chocolates, you wouldn't see an expiration date on the back, right? Like, I'm not going to mention names, but you, you don't see an expiration date on there or a key in the box, right? So you never knew when they were made or when they expired or when they were the when they were best by. And for so long, we held on to the box for like a year. Like we would get them at Christmas time, open it up, eat it and be like, oh, I don't like it, put it back. And then just hold on to it for a year until we got the next box of it because you didn't know that they went bad. So the, the, the taste is different because... It has the chocolate that they use to make it shelf stable um, could have more fats in it and um, it makes it more of a waxy texture um, and the ingredients, um, there's additional ingredients in there to make it last longer. So you could use like sorbitol and like all sorts of extra sugar and preservatives to make it last longer. So things that are fresh taste better. Like if you have like a fresh loaf of bread, I mean, you cut into it and you eat like a fresh loaf of bread, it tastes different than sliced bread that you, you know, keep for like a week or two it just the flavor will 
diminish over time. And so when you eat something fresh, it's just like a pop of flavor in your mouth, right? And so um, fresh cream, fresh butter, there's no preservatives in it. So it's going to taste the best within the first week, ideally, if you can eat it. You know, ours have a three to four week shelf life, but ideally you eat it as soon as you get it. Like when you go to a restaurant, you eat, it's not like you take the dessert home and put it in the fridge and you eat it like a week later, you eat it then. They just made it, right? So you want to eat it as fresh as possible. And do you keep that sort of ethos as you've gone on to make the package uh, chocolates? I mean, with the preservatives and all of the additives that you need to preserve it longer? Or do you try to focus on, quote unquote, the freshness of the chocolate? We focus on the freshness of the chocolate, right? And and there's there, there's pros and cons to it. Obviously, we can't like manufacture a ton of chocolates and be like, it's going to last us six months. We can only plan... Um, you know, two, three, I mean, we can plan in advance, but then we don't want to hold on to too much chocolate because then it'll go bad. So, you know, it, we are priding ourselves in fresh chocolates using fresh ingredients. And so we're not trying to mass manufacture chocolates. There's no preservatives in there other than sugar as a preservative, but no like sorbitol or any type of ingredient like that, that we'd be like, these chocolates will last six months, no problem. I'm like, you better eat them because in two months you might cut them and you might see something in there. Just like, bread or something you might see something in there if it's old you know so even as soon as you can <laughs> what did you learn working at your parents nail salons that you've taken into your work at the at Sokola yeah um I learned a lot and I think a lot of it was kind of unsaid it was just more in the interactions um, I mean, obviously a lot of things were said to, but the interactions was like how they treat their employees, how do they treat their customers, like how do they treat their suppliers? These are all things that are so important in running a business that you can't learn in school. Like these are things like just being surrounded by uh, you know, my parents as business owners help me understand. Like I really take pride in my relationships with people. So the customers, you know, that's why we're in business. The employees, they like help me make all the chocolates. And, you know, it's important that they feel welcome. They, you know, we have a great community. We like bring food together. We like go out to dinner. I, you know, we have special meals for birthdays, you know, there's like celebrations and it's important to, to keep those relationships going and nurturing those relationships. So that's one thing. Um, and it's just, I think, I mean, that, that actually, that's like the main thing is, is that interaction. Mm -hmm. you can't, it can't be taught. It's it, in school. It's something that you observe and you see um, just by being in that environment. So I feel like that is something I've carried on with me. Um, and it's really helped with, with all my relationships. Um, and some of my employees have been around for a really long time. And that's, that's kind of like one of the things I really am proud of. Yeah. Cause that question um, of, what do we learn from the previous generations, especially families that come out of the nail business? You, you, we often see that, that it's, you know, spins into other business ideas from the second generation and the foundation of what we've learned from our parents running these businesses sometimes is critical. It's make or break for a lot of young uh, second generation Vietnamese entrepreneurs, because we get to see things that they did right and things that they did wrong. Yeah, 
for sure. Yeah, I definitely see things they did wrong and and right, and then mistakes. But you know, when when you when you make mistakes, you just have to like own up to it, and then yeah. just try to do better the next time and figure it out. You know, not everyone's human, and so you know, mistakes happen, and you can only do what you can with with the information you know, right? So you try your best. That's the best you can do. From the point of going onto the radio station with Peggy to the point of going off to college and all of that, there has to have been sort of like this transition period or a career path that you were not focused on chocolate. Uh, what did you do before you went into the deep dive? Uh, that's a good question. Okay. So let's, so I did farmer's markets while I was at UC Davis um, studying managerial economics. So we would always do chocolates, you know, outside of the summer farmer's market, for like holidays, because chocolate is actually a gift giving um, product, right? So our, our year is actually kind of like October to May, so Mother's Day. And then the summertime, really not an ideal time for chocolate with the heat shipping. And like, honestly, no one craves so much chocolate in the summertime. I do, but not everyone does. So it's not like that it's a very seasonal product. Um, so we would make the chocolates during the holidays. We get together and make the chocolates during holidays. We had a kitchen we would work out of that um, was a family friend that had a ki commercial kitchen. So we had gotten booted at the farmer's market because we were making them in a commercial kitchen. And then finally our friend was like, oh, come work in our kitchen when um, we're not open. And it happened to be um, Willie Bird's Turkey. It's like a, a turkey restaurant. So we would work there between lunch and dinner and make you know make enough chocolate to sell at the market. So anyway, we would do that. Um, and then uh, every summer I would come home and do that. And then we'd have the holidays. And eventually I graduated from school. And then my sister went onto the East Coast for college. So we kind of stopped doing the summer thing. Uh, and I got a job in management consulting. So I worked, I moved to San Francisco. I worked there for eight years, but all the time I would still make chocolates for the holidays. Um, we would ship them, you know, we created this really simple website for ordering. Uh, and I worked there for eight years. And while I was kind of like halfway through, I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this job. I, my, my parents are happy. I have a 401k. I got, you know, I have my holidays and I mean, vacation. It was good, but I was just kind of like, is this it? Like, this is it. Like, now I know what the path is going to look like for like, okay, manager, senior manager, maybe, you know, promotion to, you know, partner. But then I was kind of like, hmm, what would it be like if I spent all this time and energy on chocolate? Because, I was working Monday to Friday and then Saturday and Sunday I would make chocolates. And so I was like working seven days a week and making chocolates at nighttime because then we were working out of a kitchen in the evening. So we worked 6 PM to 2 AM and then I'd be like cleaning chocolate off the floor with the scraper. And I'm like, is this what I want to do? And then it's kind of like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Wow. So I'm like, how do I invest that same amount of energy that I have been putting into, you know, my corporate job into a chocolate company, what would that be like? Like, that was like a mystery. And I was like, let me try that. Let me give it a shot and see. If not, I can always, you know, go back into consulting if it doesn't work out right. So then I was like, I need to go to pastry school. So I was like, because maybe it's not chocolate. Maybe it's croissant that I really like. So I really need to know because I've never gone to pastry school. Is it really chocolate? So then I found an evening pastry school. Uh, in San Francisco. So I went to pastry school in the evenings twice a week and then on Saturdays. And when I finished my pastry program, 
uh, I got an externship at a patisserie and I was like, okay, I really want to like make croissants and see how this is. And boy, I figured out that was like not for me. <laughs> it was getting up and being there at 2 a.m. and, um, you know, making croissants until like six and then being exhausted, taking a nap and then trying to go to sleep early, which I could not do. I was just like, I was like in my mid twenties, like trying to go to sleep by like, I don't know, six or seven, ideally to be able to do that. I was like, this is not working. And it was really hot. I like, I run really hot. So like being in a hot kitchen, waking up early, I was like, this is madness. This is not for me. I'm like, I'm going back to chocolate. So I was like, yes, chocolate is for me. And then I, and then I was like, okay, now how am I going to do this? like okay we we're selling actually we moved into wholesale so we we're selling at whole foods we we're selling at specialty grocery stores and then i was like this isn't quite enough you know this isn't quite enough to make it like to to transition over from you know working corporate um so i found a business planning class i was like i need a business plan so i found a business planning course um that was in the evenings i took the program and i figured out how i was going to be able to fully operationalize my business and move over by setting some actual goals too for myself of like different sales by, by different points in time. And then when I was like, if I hit this goal and I can do this, then I'm going to, I'm going to leave consulting. And so I finished my business planning class. I hit my goal. And then I was like, okay, now we can get a commercial kitchen and I can do this full time. So that's when I finally left consulting and then moved from full time to part-time consulting. I was working three days a week. My, my client was super nice. And I was like, I don't know how I can, I like really want to do trucks. She's like, why don't you do three days a week? I'm like, that's an option. Yes. I'll totally take that. So I did three days a week and then I had two days a week to focus on chocolate. I mean, two weekday work days, weekday work days. Um, and then eventually I would just slowly transition over, but I definitely played it safe the whole time. I didn't just jump over. Um, we didn't have any investors. So it was important for me to me and my sister to continue owning the business outright and how could we do that? Um, so there, I mean, there's challenges with that too, you know? Yeah. It's like for all the people listening, when we think about our dreams and what we really want to pursue, you know, and our passions, we have to sacrifice a lot as people who are immigrants with this sort of idea that we have to survive and we have to thrive and we have to be safe the other side of this equation is also about taking risk with our time. It's very limited and we have to really go for it and be committed to, you know, cranking it up on the, the hobby or whatnot to get it up to the point where it's, it's viable. It's commercially viable to, to prove the point that we can live off of that thing. And that that's a really big hurdle for anybody, for immigrants or for, mm -hmm. Americans that have been here for five generations, you know, just the, the, the jump off point to, to have the courage to, to execute on our off time it takes a big commitment. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, it does. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> so, yeah. I commend you for, for that. It's, it's always, a, and you, you started a, many years ago and, you know, I I've heard of, of, uh, Sokola and I've heard about your business for, for a while now. And uh, shout out to Johnny for for introducing us. Now, French culture seeps into so many aspects of the Vietnamese culture, for better or for worse. Now, this idea of socola, right? It's a Vietnamese word, but it has its roots in French, right? How did you come up with the 
you know, the, the name of it? You know, um, we thought, you know, we're like, okay, we're trying to figure out different names for the company. And we just thought, you know, it sounded so good because there also the movie Chocolat came out like yep. around that time, maybe a couple of years before that. And we're like, oh, it's so elegant. It sounds so nice. And we're like, Chocolat, maybe we can educate people about Vietnamese people in chocolate, like because we were Vietnamese sisters. So it made sense when we grew up in predominantly white city neighborhood and everything so it's like we can tell them you know it's so cool it needs chocolate in vietnamese you know and um there's some problems with with having that you can't trademark it because you know uh it means something else in the product in another language so then we that was one thing but it's it just sounded really beautiful but people then started asking us like is this vietnamese chocolate or why is it being like, well, we're Vietnamese sisters. See, it makes sense. That's why. And they're like, well, okay. Is there Vietnamese flavors? And we're like, no. And so we were kind of like then identity crisis. Like, why did we do this? Versus making it Liu and Liu chocolates or something. So anyway, we then decided, you know, to move over and create more Vietnamese uh, flavors. But there was actually no chocolate growing in Vietnam then. And it's only happened in the last, I want to say like 10 to 15 years that chocolate's um, been grown and been intercropped with coffee. And so now there is a chocolate market in Vietnam. And so it is possible to use uh, Vietnamese cacao. You know, that's that's a, a really interesting thing that I actually wanted to get into much later, but we're going to get into it right now then. Uh, chocolate being grown in Vietnam just 10, 15 years ago, there are not many chocolate companies in Vietnam, right? other than the big one, but they're owned by French people, right? Moreau, mm -hmm. Moreau, I, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Fantastic chocolate. Um, but it's so ironic that it's Vietnam cocoa beans, uh, yeah, cocoa beans, right? And mm -hmm. we don't have a an ownable export in that sort of sector, you know? And here we are in America, we have chocolate. Do you ever consider uh exporting to vietnam or setting up shop in vietnam yeah you know that it's come up a lot in like the last year or so and 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 just to your point about cacao i feel like they you know some of the companies there kind of control a lot of the cacao beans there but they are actually exporting it um like smaller companies roasters are here roasters here are importing the beans and making like a single region benchea bar or you know all sorts of things so they get it but not in large quantities right and so it's actually it's easier to actually put the chocolate bar there so i mean they they have a lot of the chocolate and i i love their chocolate it's amazing um but yes i would like to do that i would like to go to be able to do a little pop-up shop there there's um people have been asking so maybe i could maybe i'll set that intention out there to be able to do a pop-up there maybe get some beans myself and maybe create you know a sokola sokola bar yeah. <laughs> so you know anything's possible do it for the culture yeah because <laughs> <laughs> right now i i understand that you're sourcing chocolate from a company called guitar is that the yes. name so yes, tell me about that is. relationship mm -hmm. why why that company yeah so um it's important to me to source locally to me like where our company is and um there are a lot of chocolate manufacturers overseas in in europe right so you have like the big players like valrona um and um cacao berry and calibo and they're all like processed over there and then they get shipped over here and i was like why don't we save a step 
and get something that's processed here and then I can get it really close to me. And and it's also a family owned company. So I love supporting family owned uh, companies and businesses. So we get the chocolate process from there. We get the cream from Sonoma County. um, And then we get a lot of like the other ingredients locally as well. So a lot of things you can't, you know, obviously cacao doesn't grow around here, but it's like the company is based around here, right? And it's processed locally. Um, So a lot of the, you know, the cream and butter, which is a big part of our ingredients and the chocolate um, is is locally sourced. Yeah, how beautiful would that be if you had a story uh, of Sokola, you know, coming out of Vietnam, some bars coming out of Vietnam, because, you know, you could always have just a a part of it uh, coming out um, and historically tying that back into the the Vietnamese uh, culture. That would be a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that'll be. So, how about the flavor design process? I'm sure there's like this huge evolution in the span of the the years that you've been working it. How did you come up with flavors initially, and how has it evolved since then? Yeah, when we started, we basically had four flavors, and this was just kind of like what what's on the marketplace, right? That we knew. So like dark chocolate, milk chocolate, raspberry, caramel, and then coconut. Like that was like, that was it. And then, you know, we kept making those flavors and when we made them, they were big. They were in like domes with filling and then closed up. And then eventually, you know, we're like getting that question a lot. Like, are there any Vietnamese flavors in this? And people were like starting to give us flavor suggestions, like being at a farmer's market. That's what I love about farmer's markets or, you know, even our retail store where people can come in and um, see us making chocolates and they can eat it. And like, Oh, this reminds me of when I went and I traveled here and, you know, it was so good. Well, could, would you consider making, you know, something like this, you know, like coming up with all these flavor ideas, like, hmm, let me think about it. Um, but we started introducing, you know, someone said make a chili chocolate, you know? And I was like, I'm going to switch out all these flavors because they're kind of boring. So I was like, I'm not going to make chili. I'm going to make sriracha because that is more Vietnamese, right? And I'm not going to make a mocha chocolate. I want to make Vietnamese coffee. Like, how do I make that version of it that I know, you know? So we started swapping out those flavors. And and from raspberry, like, my sister and I went and traveled to Cuba. Uh, and uh, when we were there, we did, we stayed with host families. And every morning for breakfast, we had guava jam, right? On fresh, fresh bread with butter. And like guava jam was like, the guava is different from in Vietnam, which is more like an apple, right? Which is green on the outside, white on the inside, crunchy. This was like green with pink inside and like so fragrant and floral and sweet. It was just such a different type of guava. And we're like, oh my God, this needs to go in chocolate. So then we dropped raspberry and we created a guava chocolate. And um, it, it's just like, it needs to capture the essence of the flavor. Um, and so there, you know, there's a few different ways to incorporate fruit, but every flavor is kind of like, Ooh, let's imagine what, let, let's think of this idea and how can we turn it into chocolate? And then sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like, like mango steam, right? That's like the most, I, I love mango steam, but when you think about what that flavor tastes like, it tastes like sweet. It just yeah. like sweet, tart and delicate. And it's all about the texture, right? And that doesn't, that doesn't go well into chocolate, but passion fruit, it has a tartness to it, right? You can put it into a chocolate and you can see it. Durian, yes, above my head. Durian, of course. Um, it's like, we have an email list just specifically for durian when we make it and sell it in, you know, box sets. And so durian and white chocolate, I was like, I need to make a durian chocolate. And of course, 
there's no recipe for durian chocolate. I don't know if you ever looked for it. I mean, when I, when I made it, so had to like find other recipes with a similar texture, consistency, create a recipe based on that and then see if it would work. And so all these flavors that I created there, there's no recipe for it out there originally. I mean, some there are, but how do I make it my own? How do I, you know, create a twist on a flavor and how do I turn it, make it Vietnamese? <laughs> how do I put a little Vietnamese heritage and spin on it, you know? Yeah. I completely understand what you mean when you're talking about mangosteen, because mangosteen is a very subtle flavor. It's sweet and it has very subtle notes. Um, when you think about guava, it's there's just much more of an identity uh, going into that. But at the same time, you know, I came up with pho tacos about 10 years ago and I was, I sold it at, yeah, I don't know if you know the 626 night market and the Bay area night mm -hmm. market. Oh yeah. 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 So I, I supported my family for a decade, you know, doing, doing that work. And when I came up with the idea of a pho taco, it's like, you can't just make pho and, and take the meat and then put it in a taco, right? You have to really figure out a way to punch up the flavors, right? So I want to ask you, if I'm thinking about guava, I don't think that you're just like smashing up a bunch of guava and then infusing it, right? There's got to be something that sort of elevates the profile of the guava flavor. What can you share? Can you share the process of sort of like, you know, when you stumbled on the idea of guava or raspberry, what do you have to kind of think of to punctuate the flavor profile a little bit more so when we bite into that chocolate it actually tastes more guava and not fall flat on the bite yeah that's a really good question so remember i was talking about infusing flavors into something so there's like different types of recipe bases based on like the liquidity of the ingredient you're trying to incorporate so cognac versus a fruit right like and viscosity and water activities so there's like all these things that come into play and so when you want to incorporate fruit into a chocolate you could and, oh let me back up a chocolate a chocolate truffle actually gets its name from a truffle mushroom because when you make this in a very simple way it's like chocolate cream and butter and you roll it and you just put it in cocoa powder that's like the french way or the traditional way it looks like a truffle mushroom okay so there's that there's like that's a chocolate truffle so you start with that as a base right and there's different um ratios depending on what you're trying to incorporate into it so for example for this guava let's use that as an example what you could do is i could be like oh i really like that guava jam i'm just gonna put it into the ganache mix it in maybe it'll taste more like chocolate and less like guava you know, you also have extracts, you have like vanilla extract or essence and those kind of essences, essences and those kind of flavors. And you can put that in. So you won't get any texture and you'll just get like bite and be like, oh, I smell guava. Right. And then the another way you can do it, which is what we did in this case, is I was like, I want it to be guava in your face and I want you to taste it right away. And I want you to get some texture in there. So what I did then is made a layered chocolate. So when you bite into it, you get a layer of guava patapui, which is like a fruit jelly layer, and then a layer of dark chocolate ganache. So the the, the patapui is made with guava puree, uh, pectin, and sugar. Um, and so you cook it to a very precise temperature, get the right um, 
the right texture and taste because you could burn it too if it's too hot. And then you layer it on top of a dark chocolate ganache. And then you bite when you bite into it, you're going to definitely know it's guava. That makes perfect sense because the separation of the flavors, because I can't imagine infusing guava and getting it mixed up with the chocolate. But now that it's layered in, uh, there's a separation and then your taste buds can actually differentiate between or the combination of having chocolate and guava float around in your mouth. It mm -hmm. will all make sense. But if you infuse it into the chocolate and go through the heating process, perhaps you're going to lose that flavor profile of guava. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's also what you want to achieve. Like, what do you want? What or what do I or you or whoever's making the chocolate want it to taste like? Maybe you only want a little bit of guava. Maybe you don't want it to be like so strong. And then you could use, you know, milk chocolate or white chocolate or dark chocolate. So you have to figure out like what's the vehicle for the flavor too. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have a pho chocolate too. I yes, think. I was going to talk about that and too. So, so that you take spices and infuse it into the cream, right? Because you don't want to grind it up and then put it in there and it'll be grainy. So you have to figure out how to get the essence of the flavor into the chocolate without changing the texture in this case. Now, um, without getting into any trade secrets, do you take the, let's say five, I don't know how many spices there are, but five spices? More than five. Okay, so there's <laughs> a, a variety of spices that you have to take. And do you put it in like a like a, a cheesecloth bag and then you boil it down and get the essence of that flavor and then infuse into the chocolate? Or do you make another layer that goes on top like the guava? No. So we, so, so we have chocolate cream and then butter. So there's like, that will be kind of more of an infusion. So we take the spices, we toast them all up. So you get like really intense flavor, steep it in the cream, and then we would strain it out and then use the cream and make the chocolate with it. That's awesome. And then what about uh, do you get the, oh. <laughs> do you get that in, in, in the fudge chocolate at all? No, I don't. I don't. I didn't put it in that one. Do you put nukmam in your fudge? Or yeah, you yeah. put hoisin? You do? Oh, no, no. okay. Oh, well, oh in, in the broth. In the broth. In, in order okay. to get to that, uh, that, that umami for mm -hmm. the pho brisket that we cook, we have to infuse it. So we triple up and we concentrate the flavor. So mm. instead of one spice bag in a big pot of making regular pho, we do triple or quadruple. So we make sure that when you bite into just the meat on a tortilla, that you're really getting the experience of like a concentrated uh, flavor. And so that's what I was like imagining what you would do with, with chocolate. Like you would crank it up to like high levels. Um, but yeah, I was going to ask if there was nukmami. I think because you're making it with like protein or meat, then you need to make it like right savory. Think it that flavor. Um, but for this case, it's more about the lightness of the broth in the yeah. in in it versus like the meat part. This is just the broth part, right? So, um, no, it's not. But we have a mango nukmam chocolate that we make for satrungso. <laughs> wow. So, it has uh, fish sauce in the ganache, and then there's a mango pad to flee layer. So it depends what the flavor is, but no, not in the fall one. This is what I love about the doing these podcasts. It's like to hear about the the intricate processes of you know these ideas of really infusing and incorporating uh, hundreds of years of Vietnamese culture into a very mm -hmm. Western product is, is so it's, it's really a, like a cool thing. 
yeah, this has been really fun for sure. Now, what about durian? How is that? Is it done the guava way or the pho way? Um, neither. It's a different way. It's a different way. So we like we take durian, we puree it, and we make it into like a pulp, and uh, we strain it, and then we add it to. This is white chocolate now, so we add it to white chocolate. So you actually get the fruit mixed in. Oh, That's wow. different. I can't wait to eat this with my my family. Yeah, <laughs> I have the box right here. Thank you so much for sending it to me. You're welcome. Um, and it, this is the, I, I believe it's the Little Saigon uh, edition, mm -hmm. right? Um, yep. It's such a beautiful, beautiful presentation. How did the design of all of this stuff come about? For each of the flavors? Each of the flavors, or... yeah. The, the, each of yeah. the flavors that are in it. It's... Um, I, I don't, so I like to put something on the chocolate so you recognize what's inside of it, but I also don't like to use, overuse too much color, like just like a shell of like red dye or something like that. But I want you to, it to be like fun and, uh, fanciful of, and, and an invitation of what you might be trying it. And so like for the Sriracha one, obviously chili flakes. For the fall one, we have the design of the bowl on it, and Stacey Wynn helped us uh, design that. But for like other things, I kind of think when I eat it, like when I close my eyes, like what colors do I see? So like for the lychee one, you have like this pink, and then darker pink, and then the passion fruit. You have, you know, yellow obviously, but then like orange is like those are tropical colors for me. And then the durian one, I was like, I I wanted it in a shell. I wanted it to feel like opening a durian kind of you know it's like biting into a durian and the little shell but there's definitely variations so it's not like everything has a pattern and then there's some things that have natural garnishes and like light bits of color but i don't ever want it to be all the same even though they're all mostly square i like them all to have the same like palette but a different type of garnish on each yeah when i opened up the box and i saw these chili flakes on it I was like, this is one of a kind. You can't, <laughs> you can't ever find that on a Godiva or, you know, on a Snickers bar or a Twix bar. You know, this is like mind blowing. And it's just so wonderful to have that again, infused from the core, you know, the, uh, the culture, uh, the Vietnamese culture. It's just this beautiful, just beautiful design. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, this idea uh, comes up uh, quite a bit in the podcast, this idea of like an ownable export coming out of Vietnam. Do you have any, I would love to get your thoughts on chocolate one day perhaps being something that Vietnam is known for. And I didn't know up until you just told me now that it's only been there for 10, 15 years. Is there a possibility that just like the European countries with chocolate, that Vietnam could be a true destination for um, big chocolate production, big chocolate production tours where you have like, um, you know, in you've been to Cuba and when we've gone to Cuba, we've seen, uh, you know, cigars being rolled and that's part of the tour bus that, that you, you know, you go on. Is there a vision that you could see uh, Vietnamese chocolate landing on the map somehow? Uh, yeah, definitely. They, and they already do have chocolate tours there. And I, I'm really excited to go um, back, hopefully within the next year or so to to check it out. But 
Um, so it takes seven years for the fruit to be mature enough to make chocolate. So why, so when we say like 10 to 15 years ago, I mean, it's probably more on the 15 side, but it took them planting it longer than that. And then waiting for the chocolate to mature enough or for cacao to mature enough to actually make chocolate out of it. And I, I think it's, it's being intercropped with coffee and it's becoming more and more popular and, um, the cacao, how it's it's grown, and then there's different grades. So some of them are used to make, you know, the like grade A would be for like really nice chocolates, and then B, C, D, right? These chocolates, this cacao could already be purchased by larger corporations to make chocolate, and you wouldn't know, you know, because it's just, you know, not as you know flavorful as some of the other ones are. So. I definitely think there's a possibility and, and there's been a lot of investment in there in Vietnam to grow cacao uh, with the farmers as well, because I think it grows well with the, the coffee. And so it creates another source of income. Um, and I'm seeing a lot more like tourism with uh, cacao there. So I would love to go, you know, explore it more. Um, I, I last time I was there, I went on a durian plantation. That was pretty fun. Kind of scary. <laughs> fall on your head, but yeah. Yeah, right. If you think about it, but I wonder if durian actually falls. Like I heard that it only falls. Is at nighttime or something? Yeah. So <laughs> what is it? Could be a freak durian falling on your head. Who knows? How like a wild durian. Though, like durian only falls at night. That doesn't make sense. Maybe it's the temperature because it's like hot all day. I'm not. I don't, I'm just making it up. Maybe it's like hot all day, and then at nighttime it gets cool enough where it like contracts and it drops. Makes sense. I don't know. I'm <laughs> making it up. <laughs> now, is uh, Sokola is probably distributed all over the United States. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming at this point. It is through us. So we have our retail store, and we ship all over the U.S. and internationally as well. I actually just successfully shipped to Vietnam, but there was some melting, so it needs a little bit of work. But did ship there. Um, but we we are no longer wholesale, so we only sell directly through our store, and um, we do a lot of corporate as well, so virtual classes and um, and uh, virtual tea and chocolate pairing classes, and then just shipping chocolate kits. What? Um, why did you get out of the wholesale business? So remember, I told you I had to figure out my business model of of uh, of in being able to work full time in chocolate, and that included removing wholesale. Um, and another part of, like, there's two parts of it, one for um, financial reasons, and then two, also just, uh, I didn't want the our company just to be like a behind the scenes, crank it out, and then just sell it, crank and sell. I, I mean, some com some companies I think it's suitable for, but for us, it's a, it's a handmade high-end product. And mm -hmm a short shelf life. So it's not really an ideal grocery store item. It's a specialty store item. But when you think about it, the shelf life is four weeks. So the store has like two weeks to sell it. So it has to move really quickly. And there's such a story behind it that it's better that we handle it and ship it out. And, um, and you could buy it directly to us and we can be like, this is fresh, you know, versus someone leaving it at the grocery store and not, you know, picking it up and it has like two days left. You know, it, there's so much like control that needs to happen yeah. over that. And, and it's not cheap. You know, it's not something you'd be like, oh, I'm just going to test it. I don't know this brand at all. I'm not, I'm just going to pick it up. It kind of, it, it needs like that a little bit more attention to be sold and, and successful in that way. And yeah. I, I, yeah. 
That makes perfect sense. And also probably the margins on the wholesale at a higher end is probably a little different than mass producing chocolates. Yeah, it's just, I mean, when I decided that I wanted to work on my company full-time, it was also to have a good lifestyle for me in life and like be able to have children and enjoy time with my children versus just like working all the time. Um, and I also knew it didn't necessarily success for me. wasn't like being VC funded or like, you know, like getting chocolate shops all over the world. Like yeah. that's not my goal as well. So it's kind of like at the end of the day, what, what is, does success mean to you? And like, how do you want to live your life and enjoy your life? Because you, you don't get that time back. And I, after having doing, done consulting and then having kids, I want, want to make sure to prioritize how I want to live my life and not feel like overworked or, or like not enjoy it anymore. Right. Cause I think if I, if I wasn't able to find balance between all this, I mean, I'm still always trying to find perfect balance, but not finding balance, I might not want to do it anymore. Right. It's been 20, 22 years this year. So it's like, I still enjoy it. I love it. I love it. I love everything I do. Um, and being able to interact with customers, my employees and, you know, and, uh, I still enjoy it. I think maybe it's about finding that balance, you know? It's amazing. What are some of the critical things that you wish you knew in the last 20 something years before you started or before, you know, as, as you were evolving, looking back, what are some of like the big lessons where you're like, I wish I knew this going into this work? Um, I, I guess, you know, there, there's, there's probably a lot of things that I probably like learn it and I forget about it. I'm like, I don't want to think about it anymore, but um, it, it's a lot of work. Like it really tests you. Um, Even now? Yeah, of course. There's like challenges every day. Like you think once you get to a certain like nothing, like it, it's all smooth riding, but then there always is something else, yeah. you know, and, and you have to be able to roll, roll with it and, and, manage it and then move on but if you you have to be able to let go of certain things you know and say no to things right versus like should i do it should i not do it and i still you know like the self-doubt and like um i forget what my husband says i do i'm like i like weird i call it weird foam i'm like should i do this should i not do this you know it's like being like really being able to make a decision and then be like that's it if it's good it's good if it's bad then fine then i'll do something else but you got to be able to like differentiate that and and just try something versus like waiting until you get all everything lined up and then be like okay now i'm gonna do it because you you have to always constantly be planting seeds and because you never know when one of these projects or things are actually going to take into fruition and sprout you know it's always just constantly be working things and not like planting a seed like i'm waiting for this to grow you know it it doesn't work like that you kind of have to just keep keep being active and keep trying to be relevant and and be a good person you know (laughs) like make sure make sure you don't deviate from from your principles and your values in your company yeah this idea of uh you know expanding and and pivoting into your online classes was a brilliant move you know uh i've read about that and but i wanted to ask you in the teaching of the pairing of of chocolates and the teaching of, I, I believe that there's like instruction on chocolates. What have you learned about the people 
that have come to learn about chocolates from you? What have I learned about them? Yeah, about their uh, about why they're there. I mean, are there any comments and feedback on, on why they're there and why people would go about this journey of learning, you know, the classes online? Well, part of it is, <laughs> a lot of it is uh, companies doing it as a fun event. So they're there because they're trying to have fun <laughs> oh, really? and uh, enjoy chocolate and tea. So they'll do like a class for their whole team. So they have to be there and maybe they like chocolate tea and hopefully they do. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's take a break from your daily life, right? And like being able to hear something about chocolate you never knew or tea and be able to ask all these questions, like the tea class in particular, there's so much knowledge uh, about tea and people barely have uh, learned much about tea, but other than the bags of tea, like yeah. how is it brewed? Like how are you supposed to best enjoy it? Like what are the intricacies of the tea and like, why does it pair with chocolate? Like there's so much to learn and just get out of your element and then like your same day to day. It's just um, something really different and unique. Um, and the whole classing, I mean, obviously I'll start with uh, COVID and like, our store was closed, right? Our retail store was closed. And it was just like class. I was taking classes on Zoom and, you know, doing events. I'm like, can we do something like this? Because mm -hmm. what, what am I going to do now? Like we were closed. So I did, I tried to figure out something um, and part, a partner with a friend of mine who has a tea company in San Francisco and I've known for a while. And like, let's, let's roll out a class. And and we did it and we were able to be in like Google's top virtual classes. And so we did a lot of classes oh. there. Um, and then they mostly have been through companies because um, we have to, we can't just have like one person on Zoom. <laughs> so usually they're organizing groups um, for the classes. That's great. Now, what is in store for the future of Sokola? What do you have plans for? Um, I, I'm really, we're really putting a lot more emphasis on our Vietnamese flavors. So you may see more bars coming out, um, different collections, maybe an, another type of a virtual class or in-person class. We used to do a lot of in-person classes, um, but uh, maybe going to Vietnam and doing some international pop-ups there and um, figuring out new partnerships and just getting more awareness of our brand. I don't, I feel like a lot of people don't know about us and we we don't spend a ton of money on marketing. Actually, we don't spend any money marketing for, for better or worse. But um, maybe being well known as a Vietnamese chocolatier, right? So there's a lot of um, growth potential there, um, but also just really sticking to our roots and creating, you know, our chocolates and, and connecting with all of our customers. It's, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to get, you know, messages from people or like, wow, thanks for, you know, representing um, our culture and our heritage in, in chocolate and I, you know, being able to have, they were able to have like a conversation with their family um, that they hadn't had in a while. And they were able to connect over chocolates. Like, wow, that's really cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like many of the guests that come on to the podcast, I am so proud of the work that you've done. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Of course. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. 
You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.